This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier. Today we have the gospel of the temptation of Jesus. The church, in her wisdom, always begins Lent, the first Sunday of Lent, with this gospel. We have a three-year cycle, and whichever gospel we're reading, but we always start with the gospel of the temptation of Jesus. This year it's the year of Luke, so we have Luke's version of the temptation of the gospel of Jesus. And I think the temptation of Jesus is a particularly interesting uh, story to talk about. Why? Because sometimes as a preacher, what you face is you have to talk about a topic, and a lot of people, it's, it speaks to exactly they've been in that place, they know that place. But a lot of people you're talking to, you can assume this would be something, I'll put that in the hopper and someday I might need it, pull it out, but that doesn't really speak to where I've been. Now, something every last person can identify with this temptation. Everyone here can identify with temptation. Uh, you know, you don't even have to believe in God to know about temptation. You know, whether you're an atheist or a bishop, you know, whether you're a saint or a sinner, everyone knows what temptation is from direct personal experience. Even the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, says, I love this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do e right, evil lies close at hand. I find it to be a law for me that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So we're in good company. All of us have a treasure trove of personal experience to draw on when it comes to, to temptation. Now, today's gospel shows that Jesus himself is no different. This is sort of the conclusion of, of Christmas in a way. You know, Christmas we emphasized Jesus is truly God and he's truly man. He's both distinct but indivisible. And we think, yeah, he's a baby and these kind of, but I mean the ugliest parts of our life in the sense of he experienced temptation. It, that's probably one of our most embarrassing things, right? People, a lot of people would more gladly talk about the, most, the worst thing they've done than about the, the worst thing they've been tempted to do. This is a very embarrassing thing in our lives, temptation. So Jesus experienced temptation, and not just the temptations today. He was tempted for 40 days in the desert. But it doesn't stop there. You see, the Scripture tells us in Hebrews that he was tested and tempted in always as we, always as we are, except without sin. So he had a life like we did. You know, he had temptation every day of the week that ends in the letter Y. Think of it that way. I mean, there, he's like us. This is just a fact of life. Temptation, he's a real human being. He was tempted in every respect as we've been tempted, yet without sin. So looking at this, meditating on today's gospel, and remember, the gospel's always good news. The number one hermeneutic when you're looking at the scriptures is remember, the gospel's always good news. So we ask ourselves, what can we learn about temptation from Jesus' experience? That's our first question. Second, why does God permit us to be tempted? Is there anything that good that can come of that? And third, how do we deal with the practical challenge of temptation in our life? Let's talk about all three of those things. First of all, let's talk about what can we learn about the temptation from, Je from, temptation from Jesus' experience. The first thing is timing. When does it happen? Not an accident. Jesus' greatest mountaintop experience, let's put aside later on when we talk about the transfiguration, but you're starting his career, what happens? His baptism. What happens at his baptism? It doesn't get better than this. The father says, this is the son I love. Talk about affirmation. This is the son I love. The Holy Spirit comes and anoints him. The oil of gladness, his, his manifestation to the world. This is as good as it gets. This is a mountaintop experience. So what do the, all the Gospels tell us? Immediately, the Holy Spirit, 
drives him into the desert. Immediately following this mountaintop experience, he's driven into desert by, to a valley experience. You know, solitude, hunger, opposition. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't fortuitous. Matthew's Gospel actually tells us he brought him there expressly to be tempted. It said the Holy Spirit led him to the desert to be tempted for that purpose. It wasn't he led him to the de desert, oh, guess what? He happened to be tempted. No, he led him to the desert for that very purpose. So we might say, gee, this is pretty troubling, the Holy Spirit's role in Jesus' temptation. Doesn't J the Apostle James in the Word of God tell us that God himself tempts no one? What's going on? Why is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, leading Jesus to be tempted? Well, let's go back again, and I think we can see why. Is it happened again right after Jesus' baptism. Again, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descends on him. So this is a great declaration of love from the Father. Now, I ask all of us, think of our personal lives. If you're all of us who are older, who are adults, have that time where you reach out to another human being and you say that dramatic words that changes everything in a relationship, I love you. Not I'm really sort of liking you, and they say, I love you. The three words that are commitment words, I love you. Call it a lucky hunch. What do you hope is going to happen? Probably not a response, well, that's very nice. I appreciate that. Did you see the game last night? No, <laughs> no, we ex what's the only response we want? We want, I love you in return. So it's not accidental. Actually, what's happening here is God is creating for the Lord Jesus and his humanity a chance to say yes to God. The Father said, I love you. This is the chance for Jesus to say yes to that love, a very practical way for Jesus to say yes. So what he does here is beautiful. This is a triumph. The first theologian in, our, in the church is Irenaeus, and he invented the word recapitulation, sort of like do-over is Jesus goes into the same places where we had failed, and he does it differently. Do you remember what happened to Adam after his great mountaintop experiences? Talk about having the whole creation at your feet. The whole world is created. You're put in dominion over this world. It's amazing. The whole world. And so now we have a space. How can Adam respond? Just not this one tree. Can I trust God, who's just offered his love, offered all this, or do I listen to the devil who says, you know, He's holding out on you. You'll be just like God yourself. This is the moment to say, of course I love God. Look at this. Of course I love it. No, I don't trust him. I think maybe you're right. Maybe he's holding out. So when confronted with the enemy after a mountaintop experience, Adam said no. Jesus says yes. He meets the devil head on and says yes to God, where Adam said no. But that's not the end of it. The other great failure of the human race was Israel. Talk about a mountaintop experience. The Israelites in Egypt, God dramatically in the Passover leads them out of the land. And he said, they're not going paupers. Remember, he has despoil the Egyptians. You go to your neighbors and you ask them for gold, silver. You're, you're, you're coming out. This is a victory. Not, you're not running away. I'm taking you out. It's a triumph. When they hit the Red Sea, the sea parts to cross. The entire army is destroyed. It doesn't get better. What happens? They're hungry in the desert. Now, God has just shown his love. Like what it says in the book of Psalms, for what other people has God done things like this? And what's their response? You led us in the desert to die here. 
So their response to love is unbelief. Jesus is in exactly the same place. He's brought, this is meant to be exact parallel. He's in the desert, and the thing it says, he's hungry. He's been there 40 days, he is hungry. And the same thing, well, yeah, you should have something to eat. And he said, no, no, no. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He will not, he, instead of turning on God, saying, I can't believe this, he loved me, I'm his son, and look, here I am starving. Doesn't do that at all. He says yes to God. You know, he's earned my trust, yes. So he turns no into yes. Basically what Jesus, he changed the no, uh, you know, the water of temptation into the wine of obedience. Something beautiful for God, a victory. Where Adam had failed, he won. Where the Israelites had failed, you know, he wins. So he took what was meant to be destruction, as it was destruction for Adam, and, you know, as it was just, you know, the, all those in Israel, except for you, we have Joshua and Caleb, and a few die in the wilderness. But Christ says yes, where everyone else said no. So this might trouble us, but why would God make use of the devil? Because it is Satan. Here's why. Let me tell you something about Satan. There's two different types of powers. One power is the power to build and things. That's a very positive power. Now, when you think of, 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 of people like the Nazis, their only power seemed they had, a, they had a genius at destroying things other people built. <laughs> but they're not a creative people. And sin is like that. Sin actually, purely speaking theologically, Satan is incapable of creating anything. He, he, can't, he can't create anything. All he can do is take the things, the good things God has created, and somehow try to use them for his purposes. He simply twists the things God has created to evil purposes. That's all he can do. He, he can't create anything new. All he can do is twist good to evil. Well, God has a few tricks. God can do exactly the opposite. As we're told in Psalm 18, God can twist evil to good. He takes what's meant for evil, but he can use it, despite its intent, for good. That's a powerful truth. Remember, we see a beautiful example with Joseph. Remember in Egypt, Joseph, talk about family dynamic issues. Imagine having all your brothers gathering for a family gathering saying, gee, what do we do? Do we kill the kid or do we just sell him into slavery? You know, this is tough. <laughs> That's a family dynamic issue. Okay. Uh, but what happens, he's sold by his own brothers. And it turns out not does he only preserve them because there's going to be a huge famine. If he had not gone there, not only he, but other nations would have been lost. It was Joseph's wisdom that saves nations. And so when his brothers uh, later on confront him, he says, it's true, you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. So the, it didn't matter the fact they meant it for evil. God is bigger than evil. He can take things intended for evil and turn them around and use them for good purposes. And if we want to see the supreme example, it's right behind us. The people, the most wicked deed in all human history in the competition is ferocious, giving our sinful natures. But there's no doubt about it, is the murder of Jesus on the cross is the most evil deed we ever committed. It's the supreme evil. We turned on the one. He said, my people, what have I done to you? What have I offended you? As he's saying, good Friday, answer me. But what happens here is he takes that supreme moment of evil and turns it to the supreme victory of love. He takes the moment of supreme hate and transforms it and turns it against itself into the supreme moment of love and victory. God has the power to turn evil to good. So we might paraphrase, when we have temptation, we might paraphrase and say, paraphrase Joseph and say, Yes, the enemy, Satan, means it for evil, but God permits it for good. Now, how are do we, uh, okay, um, so how are, uh, let's see here, okay, how are we to deal with the practical challenge then of temptation in our lives? So again, our temptation basically gives us a chance to say yes to God. That's really powerful. 
You so God has said, I love you. To every one of us in our baptism, we have the same experience Jesus has. That's what the church teaches. At every one of our baptisms, Jesus looks and says, this is the daughter I love. This is the son I love. We're covered with Jesus' anointing. We've had this experience. And temptation says, do you really believe that? And instead of saying no to somebody, yes, I do. Every temptation is a chance where we're saying yes to God. Not no to Satan, we're saying yes to God. So practically speaking, how do we deal with the challenges of temptation in our life? Um, one thing I, I, I missed here, I, I want to go back for a moment. Uh, very important, I just skipped a page, I, but uh, we'll still say in order. Think of it this way, you know, why does God permit us to be tempted? So we can say a yes, but here's why it's so important when we say this yes. Is Sometimes words aren't enough. Think of Abraham. He's the model of faith. He's the father of believers. It doesn't get better. And already, something that really hits me, I mean, seriously, as an old guy, I've got to tell you, and it said in his old age, he was asked to leave everything he knew, his family, everything behind, and go to a land that God would show him. That takes a lot of guts in your old age. I mean, that took real faith. He did it. Then he's given an impossible promise, the promise you, your wife, Sarah, will have a child, an heir. This was not physically possible, but it says he believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. So this guy is no piker when it comes to faith, but it still wasn't enough. Something dramatic happens. What happens is God asks him, take your son, the one you love, and sacrifice him. Now, why would God, do we know of Abraham's faith, why would God do this? Well, we have a clue is that when he's about to sacrifice, when God stops him, no, no, but what does he say? He says, now I know that you're faithful. Now I know. What he's saying, now God knows everything. What he's saying is something has changed in you. It's a defining moment. We do something that changes us forever. It's a defining moment. We all know those in our lives, uh, defining moments. So let me take an example of a defining moment that meant a lot to me, is I love World War II things, being in my age group and things. It was a central fact in our lives. And I've got to tell you, there's a series called, from BBC called The World at War, 22 hours of documentary and things. And I, I don't know, it's a weakness. But what they did is they tried, they did it in the 60s, and they did it, they tried to get interviews of people who were about to die and things to make sure we get people, everything from Hitler's limo driver, you know, to, to uh, everybody, you know, all these people would die so we'd get every type of information we could. Of all those interviews, hours and hours and hours, there's one that has always stood out. From the first time I saw it, it was, to me, it was a life-changing thing. I, I just is rooted. It was three minutes, three lousy minutes in 22 hours of programming. It was simply described as a German housewife. We didn't even get her name. And it said, you see, it had been involved in the resistance. And I said, well, what happened? She says, like this. One day, one evening, there was a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and it was a Jewish couple. I didn't know these people. I've never met them. They had nowhere to go. They were desperate. They had nowhere to go, and they knocked. She said, I never found out who sent them. She said, I'm sure decent people, I'm sure. That's a quote, I'm decent people, I'm sure. But she was not someone involved. Imagine, she didn't choose this moment, by the way, did she? She didn't plan this out, I guess I'll get involved. No, it was chosen for her. She didn't choose that evening. She didn't have any chance to think, that. here it is. I either open the door or I close it, or even worse, I call the police. You know, but what am I going to do? And everything beautifully, she, she opened the door. You know, those are defined. So we can take something and make this a defining moment, you know, a beautiful thing. Okay. Now, we might say, why does God allow temptation in our lives? Okay. Uh, uh, well, if James says that God doesn't tempt us, then why is there temptation? 
Here's the difference that's crucial theologically. We have to distinguish temptation. A temptation is not the same thing as a test. Now, I know what you're thinking. You should think this. You say, ah, oh, that's playing with words. What do you mean temptation isn't a test? Here's the difference. A temptation is designed for failure. Okay? A test is designed for success. You know, I, I taught for eight years, and I've got to tell you, when I was a teacher, I had tests. I wanted my students to do well. Frankly, it made me look good. But I mean, it wasn't that. I really wanted them to succeed. A test was a chance for them to show what they had to really shine. So tests weren't designed to follow them up. It was designed to show them a moment you really have learned. It was to you know, show to the world what you've learned. A test is designed for success. Temptations are designed for failure. You know, a classic case would be it's like a speed trap or something, uh, or it's like a, a trap set for an animal. They're designed to cause harm. There's, it's, there's no win. What God does is he takes temptations, which are meant from our harm, and he turns them into tests. Satan meant it for evil. God means it for good. It's a unique opportunity to say concretely, you know, yes to God. So what are, I want to say, four practical points of how we deal with temptation in our lives. Very important points. The first one, which is critical, is never to confuse temptation with sin. They are not the same thing. First of all, the proof that temptation isn't sin is that Jesus was tempted. And we're told he knew no sin. Jesus never sinned. But it says he was tempted in every single way as we are without sin. So we have a living proof in the Scriptures. Temptation itself is not a sin. Now, we often think that temptation is sin. And this is, the enemy loves this. Here's what we do when we think temptation is sin. We think, I guess I've already sinned. I might as well go for broke. Here's a classic case, anger. If somebody is something really horrific to you, somebody really does wrong to you, the natural human response is to be upset. That's not the sin of anger. That's simply the natural, that's the temptation toward anger. But it's not anger. The fact that I'm emotionally riled, you know, is not, is, is, is not a sin. It's what I decide to do with it. That is uh, that what, uh, what, what would, uh, would, would make it a sin. So again, you know, uh, so a young man who says, you know, say, well, gee, uh, when I say beautiful women, I, I notice. Well, I certainly hope so. God made it that way. But the point is, that's not lust. Lust is, you know, when we, we know we, we, we suddenly dwell, we now go in a, in a direction. So the, the fact that something comes to our mind is not sin at all. My father once explained this to me in a way of blessed memory. As he was a combat veteran, he was wounded. I mean, he was in some major battles, like the Battle of the Bells, second day of, you know, of, of Normandy and things. But he told me, I once asked him, I never asked something like this. Was not, this is not characteristic of dad, but I said to him, he never asked about the serious stuff. I said, were you ever afraid? And he sort of snapped. He said, son, of course I was afraid. I'm not stupid. I think it really hit something in me. That's not typical of dad at all. And he said, no, you'd have to understand, people are being killed all around you. People are getting maimed and killed. You'd have to be crazy not to be afraid. But then he told me the rest. He said, but, but courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is quite the opposite. You know, just because you're too stupid to know you're in danger doesn't make you, make you a hero. He said, courage is what we do when we are afraid. That's always stayed with me. Courage, courage is a choice, not a feeling. Courage is a choice, not a feeling. And the same thing is true about virtue. It's not how we feel. The fact is that if we were tempted, the fact that we say no, it's a choice, is saying yes to God. So rather than being a sin, it's actually an, a, an opportunity of grace. It's a, a unique chance, like that woman, is where we open the door and say, come in. 
We say no to sin, we say yes to God. So temptation, there's no, no sin in temptation, it's what we do with it. We don't entertain temptation. And again, it's very important to remember the enemy's going to try to trick you up with this because he wants to say, there's no, you've, already got, you've already gotten angry, so you might as well go for broke. You know, really, you know, you know sit on it, feel on No, no, it's never too late. You know, that he's lying. You know, when we say, no, yes, I feel this way. But again, virtue is a choice, not a feeling. Despite that, you know a beautiful example of this? Is remember, the, the, father, the, one, the father, it says, Jesus tells us, comes up to two sons. And the first one he says, he said, will you come help me in the field? Remember what the son says? No. But he says, then he went. So we're told his initial feeling was, hey, I want hey, that sounds great, I want to work with dad. No, he had other plans. But he chose to go. See the difference there? He chose to go. Now, our second point is we need to understand what we're up against and act accordingly. You see, James tells us the immediate source of our temptations is our desires. He says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. However, remember how I said that Satan uses good things and twists them to evil? Satan uses those desires for his purposes. He just takes them and twists. So, what we have to understand is like Paul says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's what I'm talking about, is this is not a matter of willpower. If you want to lose in temptation, try willpower. Willpower is the sure fail loss. It's like this. I'm obviously an old guy. I remember when we thought, for example, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, we thought there might be a nuclear war. And for those of you who don't know what to do in the horrifying event of a nuclear war, I'll tell you how you stay safe. What you do is you get under your desk and put your head down. <laughs> See, now you're safe. Okay. But actually, it's funny, I was never the science guy, but I, I've got to tell you, even I didn't think that was a plan. <laughs> and so, taking on Satan and the force of spiritual weakness by saying, I, I'll use willpower. This is crazy talk. We need God. Remember when Brett preached to us the other week, he talked about, we need, this is where we, we turn to prayer, we turn to the Word of God, but this is not something we want to do. We can't. The good news is we want to call help. You know, so the help is, is, is the ready there. Okay, so, uh, so that's why the good news is that God has given us a promise that we can trust God's promises. God has promised when we turn to Him, He will always, He doesn't say a lot of the times, He will always provide a way out. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will provide the way to escape that you may endure it. Now, one thing about weakness is, remember Paul was, was upset, he said, look, I have this thorn in the flesh, and three times I've asked God to stop this, but he says, no, no. He says, my strength is enough for you. My strength is made manifest in weakness. Here's what he's getting at. When I was a Boy Scout, I remember they told something that struck, struck me as really odd, it's counterintuitive. They said in a boating accident on Lake Michigan, often the most likely person to drown is the best swimmer. That's meant to be shocking. Why? He says, people who can't swim or can't swim at all know that you hang on to the boat and you wait for help to come. That's the right answer. But good swimmers, oh, I'm only I'm like a half mile from shore. I can do that. And they do stupid things. They try going in on their own, and they would have been perfectly fine if they just waited for help. So again, knowing our weakness is nothing to be ashamed of. That shows that's the right thing. There's no shame in waiting for God's help. So he says, you know, count on God. Wait for God's help. Don't swim for shore. Hang on to the boat. Okay. 
So again, he says, uh, Paul says, I will boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, our emptiness allows God to move in and God can beat anything. You know, sometimes we have the idea, I love this in, in 2 Thessalonians, we have the idea that this cosmic battle at the end will be between Christ and the evil one is going to be this like knockdown, drag out fight. You know what scriptures say? I love this. Antichrist and, and, and Christ are opposite. You know what he says? He will slay him with the breath of his mouth. It's like a feather. Gone. Next. Satan has no power. You know, we're on the winning side. You know, God's power empowers us for anything. God can do all things. Okay. The next uh, point is we, also with that, we have to accept, have the humility to accept the fact that there will not be closure. What a lot of us like to do is have our temptation done, saying, okay, now I've dealt with my gossip problem, fill in the blank. Now I've dealt with my, you know, fill in the blank with this thing. That's never going to happen. I have somebody I know, this is, he said it was humbling, is he found out, he went to the doctor, he had a, a heart condition. And he was really, he did the exercise, he did everything right. He ate like a rabbit, uh, he exercised, you know, he was in good shape, etc. He did all the right stuff, and he had a bad heart. And he said, what can I do, doctor? And the doctor said, choose different parents. And that's sort of what that was with Adam. <laughs> Choose different parents. But he said, here's the good news. He said, no, that's bad. He said, you, he said this is hereditary. But he said, the good news is with our modern medicines and things, he said, we can completely control this, but you will be, you'll have to stay on the medicine all your life. That's all. The good news, you'll have a normal life, but you will need to use medicine. No shame in that. And that's with us. God is telling us that, you know, there's a cure. You know, we're, we're going to have to keep going back to God. It's not a one time. Our whole life, we're going to have to deal with that problem. But there will always be, we'll just have to keep taking the medicine. We'll just have to keep taking the medicine. Okay, so, uh, so why would God do this? So you say, God could do something else. Why doesn't he just cure it? Let me tell you the real reason that would really, I think, because it seems, come on already. How many times do I have to say yes? Here's why. What's the number one, what's the, 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 the highway to hell? What's the best, if you're determined to go to hell, what's the sin you want to get into? Pride. Pride is the expressway to hell. And so the fact is, one of the, think of the Pharisees. These were religious people. But when people start praying, Lord, I so thank you, I'm not like these other folks. That's pride. It damns you. I mean, pride will cut you off from others and will cut you off from God. So God keeps us in our lives so we'll always have compassion. So we won't have any illusion. It's us. We'll realize there's no shame in that. And we can now, we can truly, co we can sympathize with others. We can really understand and share. Instead of feeling better, we see we're in the same place. It's a gift from God that we will never feel like, I've got that done. I've been there, done that. I've moved on. We never move on. Okay. The, also, the next thing, that our third point, is we must never put God to the test. You see, one of the problems, like people who study martial arts sometimes, is those are really good things. And you know, people with self-defense, especially martial arts, especially at self-defense, I want to be able to defend myself. And people get really good at this. So the instructors will have to tell them, now don't go looking for trouble. This is not the time to go in a risky neighborhood now and pull out your wallet because you know self-defense. The best strategy for self-defense is to stay out of harm's way. That's always the first answer. This is if that doesn't work. And the same thing is true with sin. In today's temptation, is, you know, when he says, you know, you don't put God to the test. Remember he's talking about the tower, throw yourself down? He said, no, no, if we fall off a tower, we can count on God to pick us up, but we don't throw ourselves from the tower. So we're saying we don't put ourselves in sin's way. How do we avoid that? We call it the occasions of sin. That's a term in moral theology. What that means 
is all of us know there are certain sinful patterns in our life that of themselves aren't bad initially. For example, someone has a drinking problem. Imagine if they go into a bar and simply say, I'm just going to eat the pretzels. <laughs> well, you might argue, but morally, that there's no problem with eating pretzels. That's true. But give it a break. We know what's going to happen. And the same thing is true in certain conversations. You know, every time I mention Aunt May, you know, at this gathering, people are going to say ugly things. But there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, Aunt May, I hope she's feeling better, but I know this is going to lead to gossip. Well, even though that actual sentence doesn't appear sinful, it is, because we know the path. We know where this path leads. So we avoid the occasions of sin. We look at those things in our life that, even though themselves are not sinful, have caused that sinful pattern. And fourth, our last thing, which is really, really important, not to overlook, is we can't leave a void. Sin loves a void. Jesus tells one of my favorite uh, lessons. He tells it only one of the Gospels. He tells it in Matthew. Here's the lesson. It often shocks people. They don't know what he's talking about. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll return to my house for which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, that, I went fast. Maybe you're saying, I don't get it. Here's what he's saying. A guy has an evil spirit. And so to speak, the guy cleans house with repentance. So he basically chases out the evil spirit. So it's cleaned up now. And the evil spirit's out here. But you know what I think about a cleaned up house? It's pretty attractive. This is a footnote, but have you ever sold your house? Have you ever had this happen when you're preparing your house for sale and about to move? And you say, why couldn't we live here when it looked like this? You know, when you have everything cleaned and every pink paint, you say, gee, why didn't we do this when we lived here instead of doing it for other people? But anyway, that's what I So we have repentance, so we clean up the house, we repent, we clean up the house, but we don't replace the sin with anything else. We just want to leave this void. And Jesus tells us what will happen then is the sin will come back in with a vengeance. He says, not only will he come back, it'll be some of his friends. This is the story, for example, in, in human terms, how dieting sometimes works. People starve themselves and lose weight, but what happens? When they're done starving, they're so hungry that they actually end up with more pounds than they began with. So this is the trouble of casting out sin by saying no. We have to replace what we cast out with something else. What do we replace it with? Paul gives us the answer. Here's what Paul's answer is. Here's the story. I love this. This is in Ephesians. He says, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. That's half the sentence. So Paul's saying, hey, if you're a thief, what you need to do is get a job. Now, Paul goes on to tell us why, and this is a shocker. Why do you suppose? He's saying, okay, you're a thief, so stop, you'll get a job and don't steal. Why should you get a job? We would think the answer would be, duh, so you don't have to steal, right? No, that's the wrong answer. You'll never guess the answer. Here's what it is. Here's what Paul says so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He says, get a job so you actually can be generous. Here's what Paul is saying, is the trouble, the actual sin of theft is that we're a taker. The cure for taking is to become a giver. We want to say, okay, the cure for taking is to stop taking. No, the cure for, if you don't stop taking, you start giving. That's the cure. And actually, we have a wonderful ACNA catechism uh, points out the, the truth that we emphasize as Anglicans that every negative commandment has a positive side. So if we're told, for example, so basically, we're told, for example, do not kill. What's the positive side? It means we should take active things to help our neighbor. You know, we should actively help, not just not do harm. 
we should actually do good. When it says don't bear false witness, what should we do? We should speak the truth with love. So the answer of not gossiping isn't to just shut up, good start, but is we need to replace with basically how can I use my tongue as something for encouragement and healing and blessing. So people start gossiping instead of just sitting there and listening to it, we can actually change the subject. We can actually, you know, say something positive. We, you know, the, we're looking for the positive. Instead of just leaving a vacuum, we fill it in with that grace. With covetousness, what covetousness is about? Covetousness is having 20-20 vision for the gifts around you and being legally blind about the gifts you have. Okay, that's covetousness. And so what we have here is the answer to covetousness is thanksgiving. As we start looking at the gifts of God in our life, and we start looking to God, thank you. Instead of looking sideways, we look up. So if we start, that's the way to deal with it. Instead of just, it's a, it's a fool's errand to simply say, thinking, saying, leaving a void. Jesus says, you're not just in the same situation, you're worse. If you starve yourself on a diet, you're going to gain weight. You know, if you just try to push out evil and not replace it with good, it'll just be worse. So again, that's, but the real thing is there's always the right answer. It's like when you're fishing. If you're in a small boat and you have a really big catch, that wouldn't be me, that'd be my friend, okay? And you're taking in with a net, and it's a really tiny boat, you don't stay where you are, you lean the other direction, right, to keep the boat even. So the thing with you, you don't just simply stay where you are, you lean the other way, you lean into the good thing, you know, you lean in, instead of not, I don't steal, no, I'm, because I don't take because I'm a giver. I don't say bad things because I'm busy saying good things, I'm being encouraging. That's the way to accomplish, especially with uh, chronic sin. So in conclusion, a beautiful truth about Jesus is Jesus changes everything he touches. Remember in the gospel, he'll touch a leper, and normally that means you become unclean. When Jesus touches a leper, he becomes clean. Jesus, today, we're celebrating, this is good news. In the desert, Jesus touched temptation and changed it forever. He changed it into a, a means of grace. He turned the enemy's trap into a way to give glory to God, a way to say thank you to God. So let's pray this, this Lent that God will change the waters of temptation into the wines of wine of obedience. That instead of simply saying no to Satan, we'll say a resounding yes to God. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.